You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith. Today I'm talking to Archie Maddox, not only a stand-up comic, also an award-nominated playwright. Archie Maddox has a real talent for stitching together uh, pretty daft stand-up comedy routines with really arresting, thought-provoking sentiment uh, and genuine pathos. We talk about his play A Place for We and how the uh, the initial performance of that has been put on hiatus uh, thanks to COVID-19. We talk about how he turns out to be from a dynasty of actors of sorts. Um, we'll also talk about Black Lives Matter and we'll talk about how white audiences respond to black acts. We will cover uh, writing for the comedy club and for the stage and also his show Matchstick which concluded with a very heartfelt examination of the Grenfell Tower fire. You can donate to support survivors of the Grenfell Tower fire at grenfellfoundation.org.uk. There is also 20 minutes of extra content available if you are a member of the Insiders Club, including Archie's thoughts on why white audiences don't accept surrealism from black comics and regarding his opening line and how he uses it to take back control of people's preconceptions. Go to comedianscomedian.com slash insiders for that, plus extra content from every episode that has it. We're going to go straight into the episode now. I will talk to you in the middle about some of the other things that are going on and also about uh, the little break that ComCom is about to enjoy. This is Archie Maddox. Let's just establish how and where you're isolated and are you safe and are you happy and are you coping? Uh, how, how I'm isolated? I'm isolated with my girlfriend and our new puppy, which is fun. Uh, That's got to be a great way to survive the pando, right? Is, is get a new puppy. It is, except she's very friendly. So, the puppy, not my girlfriend. So <laughs> she, uh, she goes up to loads of people and loads of dogs and stuff. So you have to socialize them and all this shit. And, uh, yeah, it's kind of, some people are really weird about it. Some people are fine. So it's quite an, an interesting thing to navigate. But uh, we are we're in Crouch End at the moment, which is okay. uh, which is very nice. There's a lot of very middle class arguments happening in Waitrose, which I enjoy a lot. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, no, we're we're coping. You know, it's uh, it is what it is. We can't take it personally. That's the thing that we need to uh, continue with. Uh, I've luckily I've been working the whole time, so I'm quite quite happy. Whereas my girlfriend has been on furlough, so she's going out of her mind. So oh, yeah, man. yeah, it's okay. a tricky one, but you know, it is what it is. And and what kind of uh, work have you been doing now that the the stand up circuit has imploded, the live circuit? Because yeah. I know you have you're you're a playwright, uh, playwright, screenwriter, um, radio host. Uh, so I've been doing I've been doing a few radio things here and there for Talk Sport, which I usually do every Thursday night. Um, okay. And I've been I've got seven pilots on the go with different people so i've been editing those and then treatments and uh a play that was supposed to go on which i've been just getting better and better and better because it's now not going on until after this is over and another play uh and i've started a radio play for the bbc as well 
So, you got, is that on top of your on top of your seven? The plays are different to the pilots. The pilots are radio pilots, TV pilots. Uh, the the pilots are all TV pilots. So I can I can. T- are we in now? Are we doing it now? Is this yeah, yeah, we're doing oh, it now. Oh, shit, okay. So, <laughs> uh, the, uh, so the pilots, they're all in different um, TV channels or networks. So there's uh, there's two with Channel 4, there's one with Sky, there's one with BBC Comedy, uh, there's one with CBS in America, uh, and there is one which is as yet unattached but has got interest from uh, Netflix and HBO, and then there's another one which is uh, they're funding in house. So they're yeah they're all over the place. Talk to me about what it's like having, and we'll just deal with the we'll put the radio, the stand up comedy, and the plays <laughs> on hold for a moment. Let's just talk about the pilots because when you've got seven things in development, how can you keep an eye on all seven projects? How how, how different are they from one another, and how much does each one occupy your brain space in any particular week? Um, well, they're they're all quite different. They, I mean, they do tend to overlap thematically in terms of you know, there's always stuff about race in there. There's always stuff about uh, <laughs> they're all about a comedian called Archie. <laughs> yeah, every single one. Mate. Uh, no, there's always it's uh, they're they're all um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here tonally quite different so some are just like uh just comedies uh or comedy dramas some are dramas uh there's one that's horror and they they all they all overlap but I basically the way that my mind works is if I have one thing to do I won't do it so if I have Mm -hmm. 10 things to do I'll do eight of those things so I need to have a lot of stuff otherwise I'll just sit around all day doing literally nothing I've got eight things to do and I don't do any of them. That is tricky. I try, I think I try to model myself on that principle. Like I need to have lots of balls in the air. And I'm like, oh, great. Now I'm, I can't even finish that metaphor. There's got to be some clever thing about it. the balls are all in the air and I'm nowhere near. I'm on the floor. Um, so were you a writer before you became a stand-up? Yes. Yeah. I, so I was a playwright first. Um, I've been a playwright since I come out of university. Uh, I, I was briefly working in a Undertaker's where I say briefly, it was two years and I was writing alongside that. And I, I, I basically always wanted to be an actor when I was growing up. My parents are actors, my uh, godparents are actors, my brother's an actor. And I thought, well, I better just fucking follow in these footsteps. <laughs> um, Be- better had to. Yeah, because okay. I just, you know, it's it's, it's kind of weird because I would say stuff to them like, oh, I want to maybe work in advertising. And they would go, yeah, you can do that. I don't know nothing about that. I can tell you about acting though. And I'm like, okay, cool. So yeah. this, is, this is all I can and do just- just to stay with your your family of actors, are we talking famous actors, names, or jobbing actors? Yeah, my, no, my dad actors? Uh, is Denzel Washington. That is it. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, they they're semi famous. They're semi famous. So like, uh, my dad will get shouted at in the street in like a nice way uh, from time to time. My mum okay. no longer acts. Uh, she is now a non religious officiate, so she does funerals and weddings in a non religious way. Okay, not humanist because they don't allow religion in. She just uh, kind of caters herself for whatever the family wants, basically. Okay. Which is which is arguably a perform. That's an interesting um, yeah, it's kind of sidestep, isn't it? It's performative, it's ritual. Yeah. There's, it's, there's a lot of bones of theatre in there. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. But when my mum was an actress, she was, uh, she was quite, she was really good. She had um, like Olivier nomination. She was in the UK Rocky Horror when it first come over. 
Okay. Uh, so she, yeah. And then she stopped acting around 1999, 2000, something like that. Um, okay. My godmother is still an actress and she is, uh, she's quite famous, I think. Um, it's quite, it's okay. kind of hard for me to understand because i just know them as sure them. yeah 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 that's weird that's weird that kind of like oh to me it's just you know yeah. auntie joe or whatever and then you're like holy shit okay yeah 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 uh and my other godmother was she was in the first couple years of eastenders and uh then stopped acting and she now does something to do with technology i don't really understand it and okay. my brother he is uh a, like a jobbing actor basically so okay. there's all different okay. spheres. so it's it's so it's a dynasty basically sort you're kind of. of do you know what i mean you're from you're from an acting family almost in the same way that some people are from a circus family yeah yeah in that yeah so you know there's lots of conversations about uh, intent behind the dramatic action and all of that shit that i just i find so pretentious <laughs> and just just so actory and it's that's so funny because i would not have known that from obviously I, I I know that you're a playwright and I love I love the term playwright. It's so much better than a, a writer, a writer of plays or a playwright. Plays, yeah. A playwright you know like a fashion playwright. plays together. It's called like a, a wheelwright. It's it's no, it's called a playwright because you don't write a play, you raw to play. So you've got to raw yes, it gotcha, out. Yes, like gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, lovely, and lovely. Even that is fucking pretentious as fuck in it. It's well, just... let's talk about this because the uh, I'm really interested in the dynamic between um, you as a, a rotor of plays <laughs> and and someone with a kind of with a theatrical acting background and the fact that you consider it um, not all of it but you consider elements of it to just be bullshit and you're saying that from an informed perspective because you've grown up around it yeah. so you're you're kind of entitled to that opinion the, the the dynamic between that and the Archie that I see on stage. Um, I saw, I watched Matchstick recently, which uh, oh, yeah, yeah. is on, it's on next up. And the fact that you are kind of dressed in kind of Adidas and, uh, like a little kind of, I don't know what the name of that hat is, but is it a beanie? That little kind sort of, of uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I don't know quite what it is, but, and also the way you talk, which you refer to in the show, um, that you, that you kind of, you, you went to a school in Holland Park. And that you, you know, it was it was a rough. I think it was a rough ass school. Is how yeah, you described yeah. it. School was so fucking you... ghetto, man. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> okay, so to what extent? So who is the who's the real Archie? The like what? And are you permanently navigating and trying to discover who the real Archie is? Because which is not to say people from rough schools can't be actors, but like an acting family with TV in the background and a rough school—that's quite an unusual combination. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to that extent, I. I don't really know who the real Archie is. There's, you know, I, there, there is this version of me, which is the version that I am to everyone. But then sometimes I think, mm, is that the authentic version of who I am? Cause despite going to that school and being all my friends coming from like, uh, black working class communities, I grew up in fucking St. John's Woods, which is really posh, like really posh. But then we didn't have any money when I grew up. So it was kind of one of them, weird things where I would see outside my window, there'd be a Ferrari and stuff like that, like every other day. So it's a very, it's something I struggle with to, to be honest, the, the, the self, the, I have a weird thing with identity in that. I'm, I'm not sure who identity is for when I think about it. I'm not sure if identity is a personal thing or whether it's for other people to be able to go, this is where I box you. And so I, 
I kind of have to think about how other people see me before I present that version of me. Cause like I, I speak like this and I'm very aware that people, they'll have a certain assumption about the, the things I think and the things that I will say. Like, uh, like I do a lot of, uh, post show, uh, talks after plays and stuff like that or TV panel discussions. And I always get this, uh, this comment in some way, which is, Oh, you're very eloquent. And I was like, what the fuck does that mean? I'm very eloquent. Yeah, right. And yeah, you're very eloquent for my set of uh, yeah. preconceptions about you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, <laughs> sure. quite, it's quite a loaded question. And it, I've, I've, I've got to train myself out of getting annoyed by it. Like I, I can be annoyed by it, but I've got to try and not react to it because I, know, I, I feel like I don't quite make sense to a lot of people, including myself, if that makes sense. Okay. Okay. Does that mean does that mean in a weird way that you empathize with people being surprised by your eloquence? Or I, can you do you mean can you understand it a bit more or is it just their kind of I mean effectively racism or classism? Yeah, I I, I kind of do empathize but at the same time I'm immediately angry by it. I'm just, I'm a world of contrasts, I think. I I so much about me contrasts another element of me which is yeah, I mean I I I think I think this is part of the reason why I'm not as far as I could be in stand up is that I'm not boxed easily. I'm not the guy that does that or that is like this. I'm not the Do you know what I mean? Every stand up has their persona and has their character. This like a one line thing and that's not yeah. me. So Yeah. Yeah, I think Yeah, I don't know if that's answered your question at all. Do, do do you ever just pursuing this because i i feel that i'm obsessed with who i am and who i'm who i appear to be to an audience whether or not i'm an insider or an outsider you've heard this podcast yeah, you know yeah, these yeah. are my obsessions you know i don't know and i ostensibly completely fit in i'm middle england white guy uh you know i literally grew up in levington spa like that that's right, like right. the middle of the curve of everything you know so i'm obsessed with it and i wonder whether my obsession with how I'm coming across and my constant kind of outside eye analysis of how I'm coming across to an audience, whether that has got in the way of uh, creating or refining a top line description of who I am, that thing that you could say a lot of comics, you can go, they're that guy, she's that person. Potentially. Do you do you think that's got in the way for you? Do you think there's a relationship between that and like you're you're not sure who you are and so that gets in the way of making it easy for other people to digest who you are. But I, I think potentially, yeah. I think, I think that, you know, there's all this talk about um, Black Lives Matter at the moment is bringing up a lot of, uh, mm. a lot of study for people. And it's uh, the amount of inboxes I've got from friends I've had for years that are like, yo, I never knew it was like this. Can you, t can you give me some shit to read? And I'm like, oh, <laughs> could you do I'm some work say, for me? <laughs> yeah. That's yeah, all okay. I see it as. I'm like, they're getting their black friends to fucking find out how, much they need to learn but i i have a lot of affinity in the theory of uh double consciousness which is uh for anyone that doesn't know what that is it's a theory by w.e.b du bois who is an american kind of sociologist social scientist which is the idea that primarily for african-americans or people in the black diaspora but i think it can lend itself to more people than that it's the idea that you have to look at yourself through your own eyes and then the eyes of the the people in power so that you don't make their life awkward. 
So, you know, for if you transpose that to like a black or mixed race person, this, if you're walking through a shop, do you look like you're about to steal some shit? Are you looking aggressive? Are you smiling too much? Are you looking suspicious? Uh, it's that kind of thing. And I've, I've, I find that I have a lot of affinity with that because I find I second guess a lot of what I do to, to avoid either coming across as angry or intimidating or, or whatever. So I think there is there is a lot of kind of poking at at who who I am, which I know is a very privileged thing to be able to do to just to sit down and analyze yourself over and over and sure. over. But I think a lot of that kind of yeah, it I think it is both good and bad. You know, I think if you are easily definable, it does allow things to be slightly easier in terms of how people define you as well. But if you're if you're not, I think it makes you look at the world with a kind of analytical eye constantly because you're always trying to figure out something about you. So therefore, you're trying to figure out something about what's going on around you. So this is Archie. More from Archie in just a second. And as I mentioned, there's a little bit more, about 20 minutes of extra content available. If you are a member of the Insiders Club, go to comedianscomedian.com insiders. Uh, there's a couple of other things in the world of ComCom I'm going to briefly make you aware of. Liz Mealy, who you may remember, was on the show, I mean, a few years ago now. She has just released uh, her own special on YouTube during the pandemic, um, which she says is either very smart or very dumb, but it seems to be working for her. She's had in the last two weeks over 100,000 hits, uh, views of that show on YouTube. You can go to Liz Mealy, that's M-I-E-L-E is her YouTube channel and check her out. She's a very funny lady and uh, it's always very inspiring when people do things in that uh, in that DIY kind of way. Speaking of DIY stuff, uh, my new online chat show, The Infinite Sofa, is going great guns. It's been, we've done 24 episodes now and I'm absolutely shattered. More on that after the after this episode. Um, but if you would like to check it out, you can go to infinitesofa.com or you can follow me on Twitch. I don't know how many of you are on Twitch, but if you are on Twitch or even know what being on Twitch entails, you don't even need to be on Twitch to go to Twitch at twitch.tv slash stewgoldsmith, S-T-U-G-O-L-D-S-M-I-T-H, you know, like Stu Goldsmith. Smith. I'm doing a chat show there 9pm on Monday and Thursday nights, uh, although we are taking the next week off and more on that and why in a moment. Um, but uh, go along there, drop me a follow if you're into following people on Twitch. And it's basically just YouTube, except that you can, um, uh, you can, it's a bit easier to monetize arguably, and it's way more engaging and, and uh, uh, interactive if you're watching the show. You can either just watch it passively at home and cast it to your TV or whatever, uh, or you can actually sit at your laptop or on your mobile and join in the chat stream during the show. There's loads of games that work back and forth with the people in the live chat and the people who are in the studio audience, if you will. Those are those people who are on the sofa, which I'm regretting using as an explanation because it doesn't explain anything and I always then need to explain it. Um, but do go to infinitesofa.com. There are links there from comedianscomedian.com as well. Um, and that is all I'm going to say for now. Let's get back to this conversation with Archie and I will tell you more about what's happening in the next few weeks at the end of the show. Here's Archie Maddox. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. How long have you been doing stand-up? Uh, I've been doing it seven and eight years, eight years now. Have you noticed over the course of your eight years in comedy, do you feel that uh, racists have become emboldened? Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 definitely. The, um, I, I didn't used to get stuff shouted out at me early on. But that again, that may be that the gigs I were doing uh, weren't as, as big. But now sure. or more within the last two years, there has been a lot of stuff said where, you know, people have been thrown out, the bouncers have come and had to remove people, or I've seen someone get punched by another audience member. And I think it's not just racism. I think it's just vitriol in general has been emboldened. And to be honest, I think that's from social media. I think that that's, you know, I think it's created a chasm between real life and virtual life where people are just saying shit without thinking about it. They're just quickly letting stuff fly out and then not understanding why there's consequences to those things. It's almost like it like it um, allows people to tap into their internal monologue. Yeah. And broadcast their internal monologue, which is something you would never do in normal society. No, you wouldn't. And just And then the in the last couple of years, it's yeah, it's just gone through the roof. Like yeah, some of the stuff I've heard. Like I've heard when uh, when like a woman comedian has come out, I, I hate the phrase of woman comedian, a comedian that is, I don't know how to say it, a comedian that is yeah. not a man. Ordinarily, you'd say a comedian. Yes. Yeah. Specifically for the story, it's important that they're all this is a woman. I, I've, I've seen a woman walk out and say hello and someone's gone, ah, oh, off to the fucking bar then. And like 10 people have got out and left. And I don't think that would happen five years ago. It may have happened 20 Jeez. years ago. But yeah. I don't think it would have happened five. And I'm it's it's quite interesting that people are so emboldened to to just be a dick now. It's really interesting and a little bit horrible most of the time, gotta be honest. It's not yeah. it's not the greatest thing in the world. I do think we'll come through that if I think about it deeply. I think that we will go back to a nice place. All this kind of anger and rage from everyone will create a nicer society eventually. It's not nice to be in the anger phase of it. Do do you? I mean, I totally I agree that it's not nice to be in the anger phase, but I suppose my fear is that it doesn't snap back, that it doesn't. But like, what, on what do you base that theory? Because I'd love for you to convince me. <laughs> uh, well, just just the society uh, is is patterned and it's cyclical. All human behavior is cyclical. So you know, we have a kind of a nice little bit of history and then there has to be a horrible moment in order for people to snap back and go actually this isn't the way it should be and it gets to a boiling point it all spills over it goes back to being quite nice and then more people are angry because they feel like they don't have 
uh, a stake in certain elements of society or they feel like their voices sure. are being put down and then the anger comes again and then it it can't it's like a wave in it it'll just it'll be up and down and up and down i think that Do it happens s- more quickly now because because of social yeah. media but i think that's kind of a natural human existence and where what's the end point of that do you think that that wave is everybody gradually adjusting to one another with the view that eventually we are all adjusted to one another and there is peace socially uh, do you think that is it is it heading in that direction or is it going to be a way is it going to remain a wave forever i <laughs> i personally think that there there's i don't think there's any such thing as peace because i think because people talk to so many other people and because there's so much the world is so small compared to what it used to be i don't think there ever will be peace because i don't think there can be peace unless everything is the same that i think humans naturally create division in difference i think that's just what we do no matter what it is i think we always find something to mark us out as different from that group it's part of it's like the key element of tribalism you know if you have two tribes next to each other they may look exactly the same speak exactly the same but one of them may have their hair shorter or wear a different color shirt or whatever it is they will then find that as a reason to 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 hate it come it comes from i think and i'm not saying that i'm right at all but i think it comes from a lack of understanding and i think because society is so big and there's so many groups I think there's more for people to misunderstand. And when you misunderstand something, that eventually turns into fear. And then when you fear people, it can turn into hate. And I think that it will always be like that until an ultimate common ground is found, which I don't think will ever happen because I think that would be boring. Yeah. Yeah. So when you say, you know, it's going to like we people, uh, vitriol is emboldened at the moment, but it'll calm down again. You mean it'll calm down again and then it'll get worse again yeah. and then it'll calm down again and then it'll get worse again. So with, I mean, f- frightening and realistic as that sounds, with that in mind, do you, to what extent do you part- do you feel that you participate in the culture and to what extent do you feel you observe? Like, what's the value in this has become very esoteric and I I think we're both to blame. (laughs) But like, given that you are not just not simply a comedian, you are no mere comedian, a playwright as well. And uh, we'll talk about, um, uh, is it, what's it called? Room? Uh, a place for we a place for we which yeah, is yeah. your, which is your, your, your big kind of breakout success among your plays. Yes. Yeah, Yeah. Um, but to what extent as a, as a creator of culture across whatever, whatever type of writing that is for you to what extent do you feel like your writing informs the culture or simply reflects it i well my writing i try i try to make my writing not opinionated so i try not to put my actual opinion into things because i don't think my opinion is valuable to the conversation i try to reflect what i think is going on and pose a question because I think that's more helpful for discussion. I think that ironically, now that things are becoming less binary, thought has become more binary in that you're either with me or against me. You're Mm. loving this or outraged, whatever it is. 
And so I, when it, when it comes to the topics that I want to talk about, I know full well that I don't have the answers. I don't try to pretend that I do because I'm not, I'm not smart enough. I'm not well read enough, but I do have questions about where we are. And I often don't know what my opinion is on something, which is why I find it really interesting that people can be cancelled for an opinion at the moment, because my opinion on something five years ago is so different to what that same thing is now. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a real, I think that's such a problem of the internet, which is that people approach arguments at different rhythms. Yeah. Like someone, and I don't mean to, maybe I should choose a better example than this, but by way of an example, some people say all lives matter because they haven't been part of the conversation before. Yeah. And do you know what I mean? And like you, you can easily, if you're, if you are way into the conversation and someone goes, but all lives matter, then people are justifiably furious with them, right? That's negating the whole movement, you know, that's understandably. But some people who are saying all lives matter are just someone's nice mum who is coming in at minute one of the conversation. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I think that's totally right. And I think uh, it's sometimes people willfully misunderstand that and then get shouted down. And I think that emboldens them to strengthen their opinion. And the thing that gets me is that people have definitive opinions on everything. And I, I don't have definitive opinions on anything pretty much. So most of the conversations and discussions I have with friends or with family will be around the terms of, well, on the one hand, there's this thing, but on the other hand, I don't know this person's existence. So what they're saying could be totally accurate. I've got no idea. I think when it comes to all lives matter, it it kind of, for me, that personally highlights the the idea of white privilege better than anything. Uh, Sorry to bring up white privilege because at the moment it's getting taken a fucking battering everywhere. But (laughs) of course, I, I think it highlights it because the privilege in that statement is that you're seeing another word in black lives matter that isn't there, which is black lives matter more. And no one has said yeah. that or, or only Black Lives Matter. Well, literally, the words are Black Lives Matter. And if your sentiment is all lives matter, obviously all lives matter. No one's saying they don't. But at the moment, these are the lives that are in danger. So this is sure. why people are saying it. And I find it a really interesting thing that people argue against. I mean, I, on my Twitter at the moment, I'm getting loads of trolling because I, I've been quite vocal on the Black Lives Matter front. And I'm getting loads of trolling from people. And sometimes I just lose it and I go, you know what? Suck your mum, fuck off. And sometimes I just say, okay, so you think this thing, what if I change the analogy so that it's this thing? And then sometimes they kind of start to understand what it is that I'm saying or what the other people are saying. And they'll go, I never thought about it like that. And I think that's the problem of online discourse is that there's never room for conversation. Mm. It's just shouting. Yeah. Yeah. It's shouting. And I think just to come back to the the point I was trying to make by kind of hanging it around a particularly tricky and sort of uh, contemporary example is that the conversation is going on and everyone is at a different point in that conversation. You Mm. were saying that your opinions now very different to your opinions five years ago. Whereas people treat each other online now as if, it's almost like if I learn the latest iteration of how we use a particular term and someone else uses the version I was using last week, I'm furious with them. I can't believe you're talking like that. 
Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Because it's like, it's all happening at hyperspeed. And as you say, it's, there's a lot of shit. Yeah. And there's a lot of pressure for you to be up to date and educated on the manner, on the way that you should feel and the way you should think and the terms you should use, which, you know, I know, I'm, I know that terms are, are changing all the time, but I find it really interesting when like, when a 60 year old gets a term for something wrong and then they scream that. And I'm like, well, yeah, you're just going to make that person really afraid to ask questions now. And I get it from the other side as well, is that you don't want to be called a term that you don't like because sure. you identify as whatever that thing is. You want to be identified as such. But I, it's, it's and, and it's justifiably frustrating that yeah. someone has had 60 years to fucking learn about it. <laughs> it <is. laughs> Do you know what I mean? It is. But, you know, at the same time, I think if they're over 65, I think just let them get away with the shit they think because they're not going to be around much longer. Just let them have it and then there, let's move on. <laughs> That's what I think. <laughs> I think the life expectancy is actually increasing. You might find that 65 goes up to 70 <laughs> in a year and 75 and like at what level? Because I know you've got that bit of material about um, just uh, not giving the vote to people over the age of, is it 65? Yeah. Yeah. Just don't let them vote anymore because you're not going to be around by the time shit changes. Just don't, don't let, and obviously that's, that's a, a, a dumb point made in a show for laughs, but. I think there, you know, you have to be a certain age to be able to vote. I think there should be a cutoff. If you can't drive anymore, if your driver's license getting taken away, you can't vote. That's what I think. <laughs> Talk to me about the 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 switch. When you say there, that's a that's a dumb point. I'm making a joke. Some of your material is dumb in inverted commas, like by which I think we both mean accessible and silly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. kind of dumb stuff. Um, something I noticed particularly in Matchstick was that you would make quite a fun, silly sort of a joke and then say something that was a well-written kind of poignant or, or provocative sentence and then bounce onto another silly joke. Yeah. And it was like an interesting kind of mesh between the things of, of, um, talking about you said i get jealous of people with depression i yeah. don't feel anything you know that and it was like oh hello and but it, but they kind of they i just want to talk about the structure i suppose how you structure a show and the decisions that go into at what point you do a dumb joke and at what point you say something meaningful and and whether you are aspiring to dumb jokes which are themselves meaningful as well yeah i mean i i kind of I so my family have always called me my Trinidadian family have always called me dumb smart which means I say <laughs> I say smart things in a dumb way and dumb things in a clever way which I does that mean I'm suddenly adopted into your Trinidadian family you could well be. That. You really could be. <laughs> and I for me that is the way to best approach comedy if I want to talk about big kind of subjects I think I have to do it in a stupid way so it's not a lecture anymore and the same way to talk about something dumb and elevate it to the point of intellectualism, I think it's just really interesting. Like um, the last Edinburgh show I did, which was called Big Dick Energy, which I really regret the title of. Uh, do you? I do, because I got at the beginning of the run, I got loads of meninists. Uh, so people that thought it was a men's yes. rights activism show. <laughs> and I'd be like, this is not an anti-feminist oh, show lads, at all. This is, if anything, this is a pro-feminist show. You're not going to enjoy it. But... There, there's stuff in that show, which I think, I think that's my style evolving into what I want to do into talk about big things in just a really stupid way. Like there's a okay. bit in this show, uh, which I'm, I'm very, I, I, I hesitate to say proud because I, I don't think I'm proud of anything ever, 
but I I was happy with because I was talking about um, the the idea of white tears being worth more than black pain, which is this idea that if a white woman cries, it is worth more news coverage than a black person dying. And I illustrated that by using the story of Goldilocks and the three bears. Uh, okay. And then the end of that joke is that the, the villagers turn up and they kill the bears. And do you know what color the bears were? They weren't polar. And I... I think that's just quite a fun way to kind of talk about these, these subjects. And yes. I, you know, I, I fundamentally want a, a show of mine to be funny. I want that to be the first thing that people say. I, 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 if it's a comedy show, if it's a play, then I don't mind if they don't think it's funny and they think it's, it's dramatic and interesting and blah, blah, blah. But for a comedy show, I, I don't want people to come away having, you know, feel like they're, they're punched or that their their legs have been taken away from them. By all means, if that's what you want to do, then that's great. I think there's a lot of room for for that kind of comedy. But for me, I I want it to be funny. And if I can get some big ideas in there with it, great. When you say that you um, that you're not that you're hesitant to uh, to be proud of anything, or you seem hesitant to be proud of any of your work or of your your stand up work certainly. Um, where does that come from? Let's talk about that. Is that because it would make you vulnerable to express pride in what you've done? Uh, it it could be. It could be. I'm not one for expressing vulnerability in any way. Um, it could uh. be that, but it could also be that I genuinely think everything I do is worthless in the grand scheme of things. I genuinely think that when you look at the world and there's people building buildings and creating orphanages and doing all this great stuff. I'm like, oh, I told a couple of jokes and wrote some words down. I genuinely don't think it does anything except maybe light relief. And that's not me going like that, that it's terrible stuff. It's just, I haven't done, done anything yet that I think is of, of proper value. Okay. Your threshold for something you'd be proud of is high. I've, is that what you said? That's why you're not like you do have a threshold, but it's just very high. I, I think so. I hope so. Otherwise, fucking, hell, I'm just going to be floating through this shit until death. Are you going to? But there's <laughs> a funny way to look at it because are you going to? What's the end of that? Like, are you ever going to write a routine which is as good as if you had built an orphanage? No, I never will. I never will. But it, it won't be the routine. It will be how it makes people feel in that routine. And that would okay. be the thing. If I can, if I can see, if, if I wrote a routine that I could go and perform in like an EDL march that changed their view and made them actually want to be anti-racist, I'd be like, okay, I'm proud of that routine because I feel like it's actually done something. Whereas, you know, the, if I have a routine where it's just made people laugh and then they go about their day, that's great, but it's not something that I can say I'm proud of. How do you feel? How do you feel when, like, I always find it quite difficult if I'm, like I, I think my comedy has a value. I, I sometimes don't know what that value is, but I think it has a value. But if someone, if I'm feeling down and someone goes, you know, like down, down, like mm. one of those kind of, what am I doing with my life downs? And someone says to me, oh, but you know, you make people happy for a living. My, my reaction to that is always like, yes, but if I wasn't there, there's plenty of other people who'd love to take my slot on the bill and take my money and make those people happy for a living. What's your position on that? Do you think there is, inherent value in as you say light relief or is the or is the value very light is do you feel like you are i suppose because you've got the other angle of being doing something worthy like playwriting um i i wonder how that will 
how that how that changes things uh i i think there is value I think there is because, you know, sometimes I've seen comedians or musicians or actors properly change people's lives. And I think that's great. I, I think, I think club comedy, like I really value club comedy because I think, I think it gets such a bad rap amongst people that bypass the circuit. Um, Mm -hmm. I, I really value club comedy because I have to keep remembering that the people that have come out to a club in like in Bath or Brighton or wherever that not only are you there for that 20 minutes you're there one for their whole evening you're there for that section of their life so you better fucking make them enjoy it otherwise you're doing a disservice to yourself and everyone however I still wouldn't put that as something to be proud of I, d- I don't know why I have a weird thing with with pride in that you know I've people I went to school with some of them are doctors they can be proud they're actually fixing people and fixing things whereas when I look at what I do I'm like well I'm improving someone's life for a little bit but not completely mm-hmm. and I, I don't think that that devalues it I don't think that it's a bad thing I I just think that Pride, I think pride is one of those words that's thrown about quite a lot without the true understanding of it uh, being reached by people. So I'm just very hesitant to say I'm proud of that. Yeah, okay. Although okay. that being said, to an extent, I was proud of the show you watch, Matchstick, because the reason why I did that show is because I, I went to school with a lot of people that were in Grenfell Tower and yeah. uh, people people I know went to school with died. And that show managed to make me money enough to give back to a charity, which in turn can then help people, you know, fighting for justice and setting up their lives. It wasn't much money. But it was something that I could do, which the outcome of it made me proud. But but the the thing itself didn't, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Mm-hmm. It may make no very, sense. Yeah, no, no, no. I think it does make sense. And that moment in the show when you talk about Grenfell is a very powerful moment. And you frame it, I think, sensibly, you frame it as it's not jokes. Do you know what I mean? It's not you're not doing anything funny with mm. that. You're actually just talking honestly about it. And then there's a kind of structural payoff that manages to end the show, which is the, I don't want to give anything away, but, um, but that stuff is, um, yeah, it's really, it's really powerful and it's really honestly written. One of the things that really struck me about it was you talked about crying yeah, and saying, we're, we're not people that cry. We're not people that ever cry. And I don't even know what the question is really, but I think, I think that kind of harks back to what I was saying about or, or inquiring about vulnerability and your mm. ability to show vulnerability, that it sounds like you didn't have that at school. No. And yet, did you have that at home? Could you show vulnerability at home? I, I reckon I could, but I didn't. And to an extent, I still don't, which is something that I, I get told off by my girlfriend for a lot. Um, I... Yeah, I, I don't I don't know why it's still like that. There's there's a block there somewhere, which if I was in therapy, I could probably unlock. But I I'm very happy keeping that blocked up for the time being because I don't know what shit I've forgotten that I need to deal with. <laughs> That's so far. I hear that a lot from people who haven't done therapy who are like, no, 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 I'm not going to do that because I'm fine right now. It's like a kind of yeah, I mean, 
I don't want to put words in your mouth, but that's kind of fear, right? Does that yeah. not suggest, in the same way that we as artists should write towards the difficult bit? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, write yeah, yeah. towards the stuff that scares you, write towards the stuff that's difficult. Is that, like, where, where do you, where do you feel you are with that at the moment? That, that if the idea of therapy is like, that might cause a problem. Does that not suggest that there's a problem you should go towards? Probably, yeah. There probably is a problem. And I would almost definitely benefit from going and talking to someone. Almost definitely. But That strikes me as strange. You're articulate. You're emotionally intelligent. So it strikes me as strange that you haven't gone towards it. This is what I mean. I'm a body of contrast to you. I just, I don't, <laughs> I don't quite make sense. I can't explain why that's a decision I've made. Um, I, I think, I think partly it's down to, I don't, I don't want to pay to be vulnerable with someone. I think that's one of the ways I'm looking at it. And I know there are people. <laughs> I'm gonna, I've got a big, I've got a big red button here with excuses written on it. I'm just hitting that button. <laughs> oh no, they are, they are 100 excuses. Most of it definitely stems from fear and inadequacy, and there's, I, I don't uh, doubt that. But I, I think, I think I'm just not ready yet to to open that door. And it's quite, it's weird because I can open that door with my characters that I write. I can go into the vulnerable places of stuff that has affected me. I can go into that through my characters, but when it's me, I don't, I, I just don't want to go there yet. And I, partly I think it's because I think it's, um, I don't want this to sound wrong. So I've got to think about how I phrase this. I think that it's a little bit, I think it's a little bit arrogant for me to assume that my feelings matter. Do you know what I mean? I, 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 I feel like because I'm functional, because I'm all right and I can get on with stuff, I feel like it would be just, yeah, just be stupid for me to go and to open that door when there are people who can't function and who do really need help when I'm taking up that time. Cause I don't feel like I need that help yet anyway. Hmm. So is your, is your, um, your apparent smiliness, like you said, you're a smiley guy on stage. You're, you know, we, we're smiling a lot as we mm. talk about stuff at the moment, some of it difficult stuff. Is that smiliness of yours a constant? No, or is that, no, is no, that no. a, is, is that a means of protecting yourself? Uh, it's probably a means of protection, but it also, I, I kind of, I just, I like smiling. It's quite nice. It just makes you feel better, doesn't it? <laughs> You're feeling <laughs> it sad. Does. I mean, it scientifically does. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting because I, I have a weird relationship to mental health. As it, as in the show, it says, I don't feel anything. I feel like there is something wrong because I don't have any mental health issues that I can pinpoint or anything that okay. affects me to the point where I go, Oh, I need help. If I'm, if I'm yeah, feeling, okay. and some of that may be from my family background in that, you know, my dad was part of the Windrush generation and they grew up with a thing of just fucking get on with it. Don't worry yeah. about how you're feeling. Just fucking get on with it. And I think some of it is that. I think, uh, some of it is also if I would go to my mum and go, Oh, I'm feeling really sad. She would just, she would wait and then go, All right. Well, you'll feel better. And I'll go, yeah, I will feel better. And then that would be it. That would be the whole thing. And I think, I think also partly my want to control emotions is over, 
uh, looking at my family who are kind of it, because being actors, they're emotionally all over the place. They're just fucking everywhere. <laughs> and I've just gone, I don't want to do that. So I'm just going to keep this shit on lock for now. Yeah, that is not something that comes up often on this show. My family are all really flighty actors. <laughs> <laughs> you need to, you've got to stay grounded just so as not to get picked up. Yeah, it. it's like, it's like being the straight man to the funny man in the show. Do you know what I mean? It's like they were, like, I can remember people just coming round crying floods of tears and then the next moment they'd be very happy and then they'd have an existential crisis and I just thought, I looked at it and went, that looks horrible. I'm just going to be this. <laughs> This is this is amusingly similar to the relationship between me and my wife, where she is an ocean of calm. It serves me enormously to uh, to have that relationship in my life. God knows how it serves her. <laughs> um, let's talk before we wrap up. Let's talk about a place for we. Yeah, I know it's. I've, I've read. I've read around it. I've not read it. I've not seen it. But um, oh, did it, it? It won. No, it was nominated for the Alfred Fagan Award. Who, as of today, his statue has been attacked by uh, white protesters oh, in Jesus. Bristol, which I find really weird. Okay. Um, it was yes. nominated for that, shortlisted. It was nominated for the Bruntwoods, which is the biggest playwriting prize in Europe, and shortlisted. Uh, and it was due to go on on the fifth of May, but COVID put a stop to that. So it, as yet, has not been has not been on. It's- Oh, it's not been on. Nah. I thought I from the I looked at the website and there's something about the writing. I made the wrong assumption that it it was on and then the run got truncated. Nah, but nah, it nah. hadn't actually it hadn't opened. Yeah, it hadn't opened yet. Heartbreaking. Oh my god. Had you where had you been in rehearsal? Uh we were about to start rehearsal the week of them shutting everything down. So we just so it had got been the cast. cast. Yeah, we just got oh, everything all together. And yeah, you know what? See, this is one of the things I think a lot of writers would be like emotionally bereft by this. And some writers I know that have stuff on, they, mm. they're very, very upset. I, I'm just like, well, I can't take it personally. It's happening the world over. Just, just fucking get mm. on with it. Mm. But yeah. What is, what is the sit down and write a play process? I know a load of different versions of the sit down and write some stand up or walk around or drive and write some stand up. How does, how does it differ? What's, what's your kind of potted stand up system and how does it differ to writing a play? Uh, my, my stand up system is that I don't, I don't really write things down before I talk them out. So I will talk things out with people or on stage or whatever. And then I'll write it down just to get the rhythms of how it sounds and, where I think the joke should be or whatever, unless it's quite a contentious thing that I want to talk about, then I'll write it down. So I make sure I don't say the wrong thing because I don't want someone filming me going, this is what this guy thinks. I'm like, well, no, that was a new material. Now leave me alone. Um, With a play, I I'll think for quite a long time before I write it. So the play I'm currently in the middle of writing is about American violence. And it's suddenly become very, on topic but mm. i i've technically been writing that play for about four years so okay i i will sit down i'll think about it a lot i'll jot down little things here and there i'll maybe do a bit of reading around the subject if it's something i don't understand that well and then i will usually just sit down and write the whole thing when when i get a chance to so it usually it takes me about about two weeks to write a play, something like that. Mm-hmm. And it will be a shit version, but it will be written. And 
that that first version won't be for anyone. It will just be for me to go, all right, what does this need? Where can this go? Do the characters make sense? Does the world make sense? Uh, and fundamentally, would I watch this? And that's mm. the thing I always look at. The the depth of the depth that you must need to go to to ensure that all that's one of the things that scares me about writing sitcom, let alone plays or movies. But the idea when, you know, you'll see like listicles about like, oh, you know, this, this, this movie doesn't actually make sense. Cause if you see it from this character's point of view, they never knew this piece of information. So their reaction doesn't make sense. Like, do you, do, is that a concern of yours? Do you need to see everyone? Do you need to follow each character's journey? Like I've never really written for multiple characters. Do you need to follow each character's journey through it to ensure that it, holds uh to an extent yes but i would also say that if they're not on the page if i'm not seeing it then i don't care anything could have happened in that moment and it could be anything as long as it serves the current narrative that we're seeing before us i don't care what they're getting up to really i i care what they did in the past so i understand why they are the way they are now but if it's not happening it means it's not as interesting as the thing we're looking at yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And do you, do you have any kind of principles that you write to? Are there any like particular writers or dramatists that you come back to certain principles in the way that, that you might like with stand up, for example, I think of, you know, be more honest, be more specific. Are there kind of similar rules that, that you would, that you would have in your mind as a playwright? Um, sort of. I, I think I always I always like to think I, I figure out who the people are first and then I think, well, what is the worst thing that can happen to them? Make that happen and how do they get out of it? That's the thing that I yeah. always go. And I always I always try to think, is this person redeemable? And if not, why do I like them? Because okay. I I think that you do have to like people in plays and in um tv even if you hate them i think there has to be something engaging about them that makes you go i want to spend more time with that person and the other thing i do is i i try particularly with my black and mixed race characters to make them uh articulate i i don't want them to be seen as stupid at, at any moment mm. i want them to always be seen as clever and as wily and as cunning as you know the smartest characters that we've seen in the past because i think there hasn't been enough of that so i always try and make them make them have that little bit extra kind of otherworldly quality to them and yeah i try i try to write write people that are almost too good for the world but they always have a fatal flaw okay can you give me an example from one of your characters? Um, one of my characters, for for example, because we're talking about a place for we, I'll go for, back to a place for we. The main character, Clarence, uh, he is staunchly attached to his Trinidadian identity, despite having been born over here. And he opposes the rapid gentrification of Brixton, which is where he lives, where he grew up. And he knows what is going on. He knows why it's happening and he knows what he should do in order to survive the world and survive the current social political climate. But he's stubborn, so he won't change the way he is. He knows mm. he should, but he refuses to. 
Mm. Yeah, God, I know people like that. Yeah. I know people like that with whom I'm fascinated, despite them not necessarily being nice people. Yeah. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? Like in the particular example I'm thinking of, yeah, that thing of a flaw. Okay. Yeah, I'm wondering how, like, do you ever find that that, do you ever think of yourself, the stand-up persona, as a character? This is one of my problems. I should think of myself as a character, but I don't. And I think that's one of the things what? that kind of holds me back. I just, I, I, I don't write for the character of me. I just write things that I would like to say and find funny. Yes. No, I think, I don't know if you should. I don't know if it's fair to say you should do no, that. It's kind no. of a pretty mad thing to think. I'm sure I've spoken to someone on the podcast recently, I forget who, um, who referred to the, themselves on stage as he. Really? Do you know what I mean? Where he wouldn't say that. And you go, wow, I think there's more to it than that. I don't want to misremember something. There may have been a, it's, it's a characterful element. But yes, I mean, I think that's, for most of us, I think the point of stand-up is, no, I can't even make that generalisation. For me, the point of stand-up is to say true things that I think. Yeah. That's increasingly the point, just to actually say, this is this is what I actually think. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. Or, do I? Yeah, I do agree with you. I, I think... I'm interested by the idea of truth versus reality. Do you know what I mean? You can say something true without it being real. And I think that's where I tend to to fall on. Because I, when I first started stand-up, I was so obsessed with everything I said being true, having actually happened in the manner that it happened, and trying to mm-hmm. find the funny within how it happened. But now I'm much more along, thinking along the lines of, okay, what I'm saying is true. That may not be the reality of the situation. I may not have uh, seen this thing actually occur the way it did, but the way it plays out is still truthful because I've seen other things play out in that way. Yes, yes, okay. Yeah, no, no, no. I think that's, a, you know, having a grain of truth to it is is important. What's what's your fatal flaw? Um. I think I've got a few fatal flaws. I think I don't, I don't trust myself enough. I think I don't take enough risks. Um, I think I second guess what people are going to think I think on things and therefore try to either invert that or to prove it to a point where it becomes infuriating for them. And I, I think, I think I'm not quite willing to give all of myself to performance just yet. I think I'm still holding back little elements, uh, partly so that I can go, oh, well, I haven't done everything yet. So if it doesn't work, there's still these extra layers I can jump for. And partly because I'm scared of what happens when it is all laid bare. And I think that will come with time. The longer I do stand up, the more truthful I become. And the more open I become, but it it will take time. I don't want to just manufacture that and then just have it there. I want it to be a, a an organic. I don't want to say process, but process. Are you happy? <laughs> Absolutely not. Absolutely, I don't. I don't think happiness exists. If I'm entirely honest, I'm content. And the reason why I don't think happiness exists, I think that happiness is this kind of this fleeting concept that you can grab onto from time to time. And that gives you a a lovely positive feeling. But the moment you grab that positive feeling, I think you then lower back down to contentness. So I'm not unhappy. I'm not sad. I'm, 
I'm in the middle, I'm content with where things are. And I don't think I would want to be happy all the time because then all you could do is lose it. So I'm happy just grabbing onto little moments when it comes rather than it being there all the time. That was a fucking wanky answer, man. (laughs) (laughs) Some people are allowed, this is from Matchstick, some people are allowed to have emotional complexity and some people aren't. Yeah, 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 yeah. What's the context of that? Um, the context of that is I, I think that was linked to my joke around white privilege, which I'm not sure is in the recording, but I did have a joke about white privilege in that show, which is that we shouldn't use the words privilege because it indicates that some people are winning more than others. And it should be, we should call it benefits because it is a benefit rather than an actual privilege. And I think the wording around it is wrong. And I think... I, I actually, I really agree with that. It's really hard trying to convince someone who's got privilege that they've got privilege because yeah. the word privilege isn't quite the right word. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. And that goes, I think, and this is a... So one of the shows I'm writing at the moment um, is uh, a comedy pilot, which is about uh, black mental health and black sexuality and the... Um, God, what's the wording of this? Black mental health, black sexuality, black sexuality, and the uh, the costs and the profit of black sexual sphere. And what my idea is is that if you are from the diaspora, particularly Caribbean or African American, you don't have the time to be emotionally available because you've been so conditioned by the past, and by the past I mean by an enslaved culture where I think you're so conditioned by the enslaved past of your people that you cannot allow that kind of emotional dexterity and vulnerability because if you did, it would destroy you. So what used to happen a lot is that families, whole families will get sold down the river without a warning, no goodbye, no nothing. And so I think as a result of that, a lot of communities have kind of taught themselves not to have that emotional vulnerability because they have had it ingrained that at any moment this could go. So don't Mm. feel stuff too deeply because if you do, you wouldn't be able to cope beyond this. So I think it's a a survival mechanism, basically. Yeah. It's kind of generational post-traumatic stress disorder. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's similar to to Jewish people uh, related to the Holocaust. There's a theory that your genes are, are... uh, fundamentally changed after a traumatic event like that mm. and i think they proved it with uh survivors that their grandkids have the same genetic abnormality that they have from having witnessed the horrors that they witnessed and i think that if that's true then it has to be true for something like slavery but it's just never been like looked at in depth and so i think that like there's ideas around it there's a book called post-traumatic slave syndrome by dr joy leary i think which kind of illustrates the idea that if you have two families one african-american and one african uh they will have a different genetic structure despite having the same bloodline because one would have felt this horrible horrible thing therefore they have to behave a certain way in order to uh to realize their uh, their survival. Mm. Mm. 
I don't know that I have anything to add to that or be able to wrap up the interview in a, in a successfully, in a, in a sort of suitably meaningful way. Fucking hell. Um, let's, you've successfully answered the question, what was the context of the sentence? Some people are allowed to have emotional complexity and some people aren't. Thank you. I promise not to clog up your inbox. <laughs> are you, are you hopeful? at the moment with everything with America on fire and the protests going into whatever you know day it is now whatever week it is are you hopeful that meaningful change will be affected within our lifetimes within our lifetimes um no i i don't th i think this thing is so deeply ingrained that you can't affect that kind of change within the next 100 years. I think that change can be affected, but in order to reverse that systematic Eurocentrism of thinking and of being, I, I think will take so long, if if it even is reversible. Yeah, I, I don't have hope that that will happen anytime soon. But things can get better. And is that is that kind of like... Um... You know, people say about the climate, about which there's a sort of similar lack of hope, arguably. Yeah. Um, that you have to think globally and act locally. Is that a sort of similar mentality of going like, because the other thing would be if there's no hope, how do we keep going? Yeah, yeah, I know. Um, I think long term there is hope, but within my witnessing of it, I don't think there is hope. But that doesn't mean that things can change noticeably within my life for me to go, ah, this may actually be okay eventually. I think it is a similar thing to uh, to climate change in that I think the the annoying thing about about systemic racism, the most annoying thing, there's a couple of things, but the most annoying thing is that change has to come from the people that don't know that there's a problem. And that's the most yeah. difficult thing because if they don't know that there's a problem how the fuck are they ever going to change? Because why would you? Why would you yeah. do it? Like I, I was speaking to my godmother the other day and um, she she's just uh, been in a, a show for Sky and she was saying that uh, she noticed in that show that all the, it was it's a black show. Well, it's not a black show, but it's marketed as a black show. Um, she was saying that all the production people were black, all the actors, most of the actors were black, the writers were black, the cameramen, uh, the riggers, there were so many people of colour on that set. And she she said, I'd never noticed that there wasn't those people before. And I feel guilty. Mm. And I said, mm. well, don't don't bother feeling guilty because what why would you notice if you're not that person? My godmother's white. If you're not that person, why would you notice that there's a problem? Because it's natural within humanity to just to see yourself. And to see yourself reflected. So if you are being reflected, you think everything's fine and you wouldn't know any different. The problem mm. now is if people know that things are different and still don't say anything, that's where it then becomes a bigger issue for me. I think that things can change and they will change. And I think that it comes from each individual just keeping an eye out really just looking at how 
their behavior may affect other people. It's just, it's just you know, it's, if we go back to village mentality, it's look after your neighbor, just look mm. after them and see how their life is affected. And if you do that, I think we can all make a little bit of difference, which if you're making difference to one person's life, that's everything. Thanks, man. Yes. Now, cool, man. Thank you for having me. So that was Archie. You can find his specials on nextupcomedy.com and you can also follow him on social media. Links are in the show notes of this episode. Um, I, apologies, the blurbs for this have been, uh, I've been zipping through them at a pace because uh, my neighbour is sanding their floor. So uh, you might even be able to hear in the background, unless producer Nathan has managed to work some incredible magic and get rid of it, uh, a sort of dull droning noise. Um, or maybe that's in the foreground. The, the one in the foreground is just my voice, but the one in the background uh, is absolutely going through me. <laughs> and I've been chasing through these blurbs in an attempt to get them done. I'm already very late, so I don't have time to pause and wait for the sanding to finish. Uh, apologies to Archie and listeners to this show that the blurbs have been frankly shocking. Um, follow uh, Archie on social media, as I said. And if you wish to donate to support survivors of the Grenfell Tower fire, you can do that at grenfellfoundation.org.uk. Links are in the show notes as well. That's it for now. Thank you to Nathan Wood for producing and editing the show. Thank you to Rob Smouten for the music and for Jake Crossland for logging the episode. Your podcast consultant, as ever, was Peter Dobbing. I'm Stuart Goldsmith and I will post amble at you in just a second. But uh, if you're not going to listen to the post amble, uh, let me conclude the episode by saying that we're going to take we I am going to take a short break from ComCom just for a couple of three weeks. Uh, we've been doing one episode a week for I mean, years. There have been a couple of little breaks along the way, but um, not so many recent ones. Um, and I am a bit flat out and overworked uh, What with the Infinite Sofa, with some of the, the work I've been doing online, with uh, Child Labour, my fabulous podcast with Sindhu V, who, that I hope you're all uh, listening to and downloading. You can find that wherever you get your podcasts. We've had episodes so far with Arabella Weir, uh, Spencer Jones, Athena Kublenu. There, there are some fantastic ones coming up as well. There's a brilliant episode with Quincy, Quincy Brome, uh, comedian and radio DJ. And uh, there are some, some absolute belting episodes in the can, so please check out Child Labour. But with all of these things going on and, uh, and more besides... Uh, I am pretty much overworked and it's starting to... Uh, let's call this the post app, but I'll just keep going. If you find that you have been suffering through some sort of manic overreaction <laughs> to the pandemic and the desperate need to support your family in the face of uh, a reduced income and uh, an imploded live comedy circuit or whatever it is that you do, Jesus, maybe you work in a hospital and... and and, you know, we, we, we were so embracing of the NHS and, you know, there's the argument about whether or not to refer to people in the frontline NHS as heroes. And I, I certainly think uh, continuing to go into work in incredible circumstances is heroic. But I do appreciate that people would rather be funded appropriately and protected appropriately than thrown into the mouth of the wolf and simply called heroes. Whatever it is that you do, whether it is heroic by standards of other people or entirely banal and mundane and you're just getting by, I hope that you will be kind to yourself and I hope that you will be as aware as you can of your red flags, of the moments when you find yourself uh, uh, aware 
that you've been overdoing it because I've been overdoing it. And I think these days I'm pretty good at being aware of when I am. We're going to take a week off the infinite sofa. And we are, and thank you so much to everyone that's been tuning into that at twitch.tv slash Stu Goldsmith. You can go there now and see back episodes or check in the videos section um, or become a follower of that channel or what have you. We'll be back there in 10 days or so. Comcom, I'm going to have a, a break for a couple of three weeks um, just to just to have a rest from the ceaseless admin, the research and uh, sort of the the anxiety that has always plagued me and that for some reason elements of what I do seem to inspire more than other elements of what I do. So I'm going to try and just have a bit of a break, really, um, and uh, and uh, have take a breath and now realise that this has been recording not on my H6, but on my uh, mobile, on the laptop itself, on the built-in microphone, which would explain why the sound quality, hitherto unnoticed, has probably been shockingly bad. <laughs> I've been talking into a microphone that isn't switched on. This is proof, if proof be need be, as they say, um, that I am overdoing it and need a break. Right, that's enough about me. Um, uh, I hope you're looking after yourself. And I will speak to you soon, hopefully refreshed and rejuvenated. I don't know about rejuvenated, hopefully refreshed and at least speaking into a proper microphone. Bye for now. Speak to you next in a couple of weeks. There is an enormous archive. If you're missing ComCom, then go back. There's, as you know, over 330 episodes. So have a little uh, dive back into them. And uh, if you're if you're you know, you can join the Facebook group if you would like to continue corresponding. I will dip into it. Maybe I shouldn't dip into it. I might have a week off that as well. But I'm now confident that the Comedians Comedian podcast Facebook group is sufficiently warm, welcoming, friendly and has a zero tolerance to wankers approach that even just recently, not wankers is unfair, but well, there is zero tolerance to wankers. But also, you are very good as a community. I'm so proud of you that I can occasionally step in and go, we don't really talk like that here. And nine times out of ten, someone will go, sorry, stayed up too late. I apologise. And it's so lovely uh, to hear white men apologising on the Internet um, and anyone apologising on the Internet. But also it's particularly lovely when white men go, oh, that was me. Um, so that will do for now. Thank you. I'm shattered. Have a break if you can have a break. If you can't have a break, please look after yourselves and each other. Am I right? Bye for now. Mm -hmm.